Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would be really helpful. Please note that this episode was recorded before the global pandemic. I would like to thank Gotham Gupta for the introduction to today's guest, Rishi Garg. Rishi is a partner at Mayfield. Mayfield is a global venture capital firm with a people-first philosophy of investing. Mayfield invests primarily in early-stage technology companies in the enterprise and consumer sectors. Some of Rishi's investments include Grove Collaborative, Oliver Space, and Projector. Rishi backs consumer-focused entrepreneurs and has been a longtime executive and entrepreneur at some of the world's most innovative companies. He's held senior positions at Twitter, Square, Google, MTV, co-founded FanSnap, a leading venture-backed live event ticket search company acquired by Nextab Inc. It was great speaking with Rishi about the future of social, consumer distrust, and curation. It was a really fascinating conversation. So without further ado, here's Rishi. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much, Mike. Really excited to be here. Oh, really excited to have you on. So tell me a little bit about your background. What what fascinated you originally about working in technology, founding a company? Yeah, so to uh, to not um, sort of belabor the point too much, the I think the thing that really got me excited about the internet was that um, it was a way to both be incredibly creative as a founder or as a participant in the internet um, and also build an interesting business and build something sustainable that um, you know, wasn't just art, but was actually also science. And when I, when I got to Stanford in 1995 as a freshman, I think 40% of my incoming class was pre-med, as was I. And, you know, the internet was happening all around us. Um, and, the, and Silicon Valley sort of focused on the internet. And it really inspired me. I was, uh, I started out as a drama major when I first got to Stanford too. So like, I, um, I always had this sort of left brain, right brain thing. And, and that, that was just, it was the most interesting thing for me ever that a couple of people could build something out of nothing, create something and have it be meaningful to the world. And so um, that's really what got my attention around the space. And I would say since you know, 99, 2000, I spent my whole career um, being kind of a product first business leader at a bunch of great companies that I was proud to be a part of. And, um, and now I'm here trying to help founders do the same thing. What made you shift and, and, like in, and want to become an investor? So I, I was really lucky. My second job out of, out of uh, college was I worked for Highland Capital Partners, um, which is a Boston-based venture capital firm, and uh, got to work for the founder, Paul Mater, who was an incredible mentor and an incredible investor, and really through that process just fell in love with um, the role that an investor could play in company formation and um, helping build something big. Um, and Paul was a really great model for sort of how you do that humanely and with, uh, with great values. Uh, but I wanted to kind of know what I was talking about and experience it and, um, and go and build stuff. So then I had sort of a 13-year operating career after a couple of years there. Uh, a company like Google and, and uh, Square and Twitter, um, but my own company that I founded. And, you know, I was sort of thinking about what the next step would be. And really, I was led back into venture capital by people that I trusted where VC is saying, hey, you know, we think this is something you might really want to do. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized there was something kind of interesting about this moment in time, which is that the Silicon Valley had been so successful for the last 50 years in creating the companies that, especially for the last 20 years, creating the companies that would make a major impact on people's lives. 
And it was probably going to continue to do that for the next 50 years. And I don't mean just Silicon Valley geographically, but the idea of the technology sector, right? And the leverage that software provided on affecting millions of lives was, was not going to go away anytime soon. And I just felt like a noble thing to do and reason to go to work every day was to like go try to help founders who are trying to make that impact do so as capably and humanely as possible so that as some of these companies become really big companies and affect millions and millions of lives, you know, they're continuing to contribute in a positive way to planetary and human health. And that's kind of how we define our mission here at Mayfield in terms of investing on the consumer side is if we want companies that are not only great businesses, but also have a commitment to planetary and human health. And we think those things are really essential together to build great, sustainable companies. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about the early stage B2C. When a, when a B2C startup doesn't have a lot of traction, what are some qualities that you look for in founders? And walk me a little bit through of your due diligence process. Sure. I mean, um, you said something interesting, which is that when an early stage company doesn't have a lot of traction, sort of, you know, how do you come to a decision? And I think that's, there's an insight there, which is that a lot of times at the seed or the series A, which are the main uh, areas that we invest, you'll have a little bit of traction. You'll have some early data and the early data can be promising, but um, it can also be a head fake, right? Because through sheer willpower, a lot of times you can get uh, some early traction for a company and um, you really have to look under the hood to see foundationally whether or not those new uh, customers are sort of real customers that are resonating with the brand or sort of empty calories, right? That are uh, there because the product is novel or um, because it was an early community that was formed or something like that. So a lot of our time is spent when it comes to analyzing the data on what's underlying any early stage customer adoption and how sustainable is that adoption likely to be. And honestly, a big part of that comes back to the vision and the capability of the founding team. Because even when you have early traction, it, because it is so early, you're still making a team bet. You're always making a team bet, but you're especially making a team bet of the Series A um, or the seed. And we look for, you know, everyone says this, we look for mission-driven founders, we look for people who inhabit, as I describe it, inhabit sort of the soul of the product, like really feel the problem. Um, even if they're not necessarily the target audience, I think that's okay. So it's like people have a lot of deep and abiding concern for the welfare of their customer and their desire to solve whatever problem a customer has. We look for evidence of a commitment to excellence. So some indication that the bar that they hold for themselves and others is very high, which doesn't mean you just went to a good college. It can mean a lot of different things. It can mean that you um, showed unbelievable grit or tenacity to kind of get to the place that you are today. There's a lot of different ways to define that. But that's something that we really care about. We cover whether or not a founder is magnetic. You know, one of the things that we say is that one of the most, if you were to really reduce the founding role in some ways to like one thing, it can be storytelling. You're storytelling to your team to recruit them and to inspire and motivate them. You're storytelling to your customers to tell them why your product is valuable and what your intention is and in providing them something. You're storytelling to investors. Uh, you're storytelling to the press. And so we look for founders who have that ability to tell stories that are really meaningful. And it's an important skill. And luckily that's one that you don't have to just be born with. It's one that you can grow into and learn and, and develop. And we have things that may to help you sort of do that. Programs to help our founders do that. And uh, you know, depending on the category, we look for founding teams, I would say especially in consumer, that have some combination of, call it left brain or right brain or art and science, whatever you want to call it, especially for certain direct-to-consumer products. Like you need to have incredible storytelling and, and design and a way of speaking to your customer that's special, but you also need to be really deep into the numbers and not 
feel like the numbers are a bad thing, but are really something uh, crucial in building your business and have attention to that as well. And so we found that the best teams have, you know, complement each other. Sometimes you find all of that in one founder. Sometimes you find it in the founding team, but that's an important part of what we look for. One of the elements that I always like to point back to that Jay Kapoor said actually on the first episode of this podcast was he looks for founders that are obsessed with the problem rather than their own solution. I think that, I think that actually, if I can add one more thing, I think that actually like brings up another thing that we talk about a lot at Mayfield is that founders have to sort of have this uh, interesting balance um, between being incredibly confident, even, even confident beyond what's reasonable, <laughs> and also being incredibly humble because... And the humility is because you have to care more about solving the problem than you do your own ego, right? Because if you don't, then when the inevitable shortcomings, your own personal professional shortcomings come to the, come to the fore and you're trying to build a company, or trying to find product market, whatever it may be, you may not be motivated enough to grow in the ways that you need to so that you can actually build the company you need to do and, and recognize the reality of whether or not your product is successful. So... We try to find where, you know, kind of to that point, your obsession with the problem is enough to move you beyond yourself and then to drive intrinsic growth and development of the people who are leading the charge. That's really well said. Broadly, what are some changes in consumer behavior that you're most focused on? Yeah, that's a great question. We, uh, we think about that question a lot. What are all the different trends that are happening? Let me give you a few that I think are really kind of interesting. And, and, and then I'll, I want to talk about one in particular because I think it's like one of the most important reducing factors. So some interesting things are happening right now with consumers very large. I think that a lack of intimacy or loneliness is something that a lot of consumers are feeling. So that's something that's really driving how people are trying to react to a world of social media. And then we've all heard about how loneliness is as an epidemic. And so human connection is an important driver. Seeking human connection, I think, is something that uh, is, a, is, is part of the cultural moment. A focus on uh, important values is the second one. Um, I think you've talked on this podcast a lot about sustainability and inclusivity. Um, these are you know, really durable trends, I think, um, culturally. And not things that are sort of fads, but things that I think that will start to define uh, the future of consumer products and consumer experiences for a long time. There's been a lot of talk about experiences over things. I think that's largely true. Um, although experiences can be um, both experienced personally, but also really experiences that are used to capture status. Experiences you can talk about, things you can talk about. Um, because sort of the fourth thing is the rise of social media, especially Instagram, as foundationally visual mediums as places to sort of you know capture accolades or status or or, or attention uh, from an audience. That's kind of become such a pervasive cultural norm that um, products, companies, and services that experiences that help you do that tend to tend to win more than other ones do. Another important trend is kind of the rise of the individual. And, uh, and we see this in a lot of different places, whether it's, you know, especially around work and what it means to be a worker, right? Uh, the gig economy has made uh, this a, a huge trend where people are multi-tenanting on different kinds of gig economy work, um, the rise of the influencer economy, the really strong move towards mobile work and non-co-located work, even at big companies, which I think, you know, creates a lot of interesting sort of dynamics around uh, people, you know, just being really super mobile and digital nomads. And a lot of the room about the passion economy, I think that's sort of a real thing in terms of people increasingly needing and having the tools to 
build sort of individually driven businesses. We sort of see that to be a, a pretty durable trend as well. And then finally, the one that there's one that I think is really interesting that we talk about a lot, which is almost drive almost a core thing for any consumer company today, which is that we're at a time where institutional trust might be at an all-time low, or certainly in our generation, it's at a big low. And there's so many examples of this, whether it's trust with the big eye in institutions like the government. Um, I think some of the polarization that's occurring today is about um, a lack of trust in institutions that we've typically had uh, a greater amount of trust in. It's every category of company, whether it's uh, CPG. You know, I, I like to say around the office when there's asbestos and the baby powder, you know, institutional trust is at an all-time low. Like, how do you trust sort of brands that you've that that make all the things in your house when you know your most delicate humans that have products that, that they can feel are safe, right? It goes to sustainability with gas guzzling cars and how people feel about the car companies that they've had relation and, and the relation of that to Tesla. It comes to the big tech companies. Medicine, I think, is an interesting one. We're seeing now a bunch of trends in diets around paleo and keto. And obviously, the low-carb movement's been around for a while, but like really as a cultural norm, we're realizing that the science, quote-unquote, that drove the food pyramid for 50 or 60 years was really faulty and probably contributed to like many, many, many deaths. And, and I think that sort of miss on the part of traditional medicine or institutional medicine has sparked a lot more interest in alternative sources of truth when it comes to medical information. So in almost every case, you know, even education, I think people have realized after the last, after the Great Recession, that the institutions they trusted to sort of prepare them for the work world, maybe didn't give them all the tools that they needed. You know, I think we're seeing an unprecedented level of questioning around the idea of a college education, whether or not what a college education does is really the things that you need. And there's so many companies that are being started to kind of address that. That's going all the way down to, do we trust our public schools? to provide the education that we need to prepare our kids for the future. So, you know, the, the marketplaces for the development of human capital, really at any age, are, uh, are very interesting right now. And so this lack of institutional trust, I think, is really important. It's, it's where the big opportunity is for any consumer company, if you want to build a really big company. Because as consumers writ large are increasingly mistrustful of historical institutions, whether they're for nonprofit, government, education, what have you, um, there's an opportunity for companies to step into the gap and for mission-driven and values-driven founders to carefully play that curation role to help consumers make sense of the world um, and help them consume the right experiences and products. And that's kind of, some of the things sort of like a, a missing nugget in how we talk about consumer uh, companies right now. Because companies that capitalize on that need, I think can actually build very, very big businesses today and create new movements um, in a variety of categories. And so that's kind of, amongst all these trends, kind of underlying how we think about what kind of approach a founder could take to creating a category finding company. A lot to untangle there. First of all, when you say capitalize on that deed, companies have to be purposeful now that are actually being the disruptors, right? I think, I think so, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, consumers, just think about the problem and what consumers are experiencing, Consumers are have been offered a selection of products and services, right, from companies that serve part of their needs, but a lot has been left on the table. One, I'll give you one trend in particular that I think is like sort of relevant to this. It's like uh, we all have too much information, right? There's just too much stuff to figure out, and a bunch of products and services that used to be sort of like turnkey 
are now like highly considered purchases, right? We have a company uh, in our portfolio called Rogue Collaborative, where they sell both third-party and first-party sustainable home essentials, you know, things around your home, cleaning products, that sort of thing, paper. And um, it's amazing how every product category is actually something that a consumer really, their consumers, and they're, they have millions of customers now, really want to think about. Because, you know, in the past, I would just buy whatever I saw on TV that, that was rolled out of my local supermarket. But today, consumers really care about the, the chemicals and the products and, and the origins of those products they have in their homes. So that's a lot of stuff to sort through, right? And what Grove has done is created this really trusted relationship with the consumer so that when consumers subscribe to Grove, they know and trust that Grove will not only provide the best third-party goods and products that sort of meet their sustainability requirements, but also that they bring their own products to market that are even better. And that is, a, that is really a highly intentional goal that the founder set out with um, from the very beginning to kind of create that trust, recognize the need for that trust. And that's become a, a really big, great business. We're seeing those opportunities in a variety of categories, you know, in all the different areas I mentioned. So that's what I mean by, by helping consumers make decisions in a highly trustworthy way is sort of a special currency, I think, now for probably the next 10 years. I absolutely agree. I remember we were talking earlier. You were uh, you you also related it to a little bit of like the tra- of of travel agencies back in the day curating the entire process. Where now it's there's a lot of information, but you kind of have to do it yourself. You don't really know where to start. So you know, Grove Collaborative really, really is a platform that can really help you um, do that. But my only my only thing about uh, Grove Collaborative, and I know we and, and, and I know we talked about this. It's usually when I see you know, eco-friendly, it's usually for, you know, the the higher tier because it's typically more expensive. How do you think about the future in terms of sustainability and 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 eco-friendly products? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, um, you know, generally speaking, even though a lot of times our cultural norms, like a focus on sustainability and inclusivity, are driven by um, the young, driven by Gen Z in our case today, um, access to being able to express those values from a consumer standpoint has kind of been the province of the wealthy, you know, uh, because oftentimes the, you know, the products and services that are meant to appeal to the mass market sort of are optimized for the lowest cost. And I think what you're saying is exactly right. What's really interesting to me, and again, this is an important way that we think about investing, is that when you look at some of the products and services that have been able to go down market to provide access to the expression of those values and products for the masses, um, they're very, very successful. So think of Tesla starting out with a, a very expensive car, which they still have, but then going down to the Model 3, right? Which was the intention of the company from the beginning to sort of make a mass market, um, lower cost electric car, and, and by doing so play a meaningful role in climate change. Um, think about the Prius sort of similarly to that, right? By making a mass market, they made a much more fuel efficient car that everyone uh, could access. Grove Collaborative is interesting, just another use case, because I think you're right. You know, usually if you're one of those kinds of products, you have to live in an urban environment uh, where they had like a health food store or uh, Whole Foods or something like that. What Grove has really done is create a product, a, a process and a product that allows anyone around the country, and indeed most of their customers are middle Americans and not high income middle Americans sort of everyday Americans, uh, giving them access to these sort of sustainable home essential and, and really helping them become uh, the sustainable households that they want to be because they care about their children and what their children are exposed to. So I, I think there's definitely a, whether you start at the high end to sort of fund the business originally, or you start sort of in the middle, the way the growth did, I think it's really important to think about 
how these products don't just become the province of the wealthy, but have a pathway to serving everyone. Because that's the place that you can build a really big company in. When there's innovation, typically the wealthy only have that access, you know, but I think that what's interesting about what you're saying is, is I think the rapid speed of all this innovation being democratized and how it's trying to transform from um, through, you know, the Internet and, and the access that the Internet provides as well, um, how it's able to really transform down to, um, you know, the everyday consumer. I, I think that's right. And if you can, you know, everyday consumers don't have necessarily different problems than wealthier consumers in a lot of ways. Everyday consumers want to take vacations and go to the right place, just like wealthy consumers do. Today, just to use your travel example, wealthy consumers might, you know, travel agencies, like people to help you carry your travel has become sort of a cottage industry um, that is somewhat expensive because you're paying someone to do the work, right? Um, that used to be what you did before 1995 and the advent of the OTAs, the online travel agencies like Speed, et cetera. That used to be what you did that's what everyone did. Everyone went down to the local travel agency and agency and heard, um, you know, from the travel agent what the right places were to go and and uh, had that curative help along their planning process. Well, what the internet has done, if you look at the last twenty years or twenty-five years in terms of e-commerce, is that there's been a, everyone's gotten really good at fulfillment, at like price and uh, having an assortment, but what's been left out in the cold is this ability to help consumers make decisions, by and large. Today, if a consumer wants to make a decision about where to go and travel, you know, they have what my wife and I call the 30 tabs problem, which is you end up piecing together information from blogs and books and you know, your friend's Google Doc or whatever, so you can figure out what your actual itinerary should be. Um, and that's the kind of opportunity I think that the internet can, can start to solve today. Uh, and the same thing goes for everything from how to improve your education to uh, what's the right thing for me from a health perspective to, um, to any of these areas that we're talking about. So I think that's that's the, and you, and you mentioned earlier, you know, Uber started out at the high end and then sort of worked its way to the middle. Lyft sort of started out in the middle from the beginning. And I think there's something to that, uh, bringing that service quality to the mass market, right, with intention from the beginning that's sort of important in building a big company. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I love your, your Grove Collaborative example about how that's what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to take... Uh, those home products and uh, that are, you know, that th that that are purposeful, that that do have an, th that are eco friendly. Bring them down, not just to be um, build a brand that not just resonates to folks that um, are you know wealthy, but 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 really for for everyday folks as well, right? That's right, and I think you know uh, there's been a lot written about how direct consumer companies can create equivalent products or good enough products, but then try to go direct, which enables them to have hopefully different cost structures. You know, one of the things that um, Stu and the team at Grove have done that I think is really interesting is they care a lot about price um, and keeping things in a price range that is accessible to everyday Americans as they deliver new first party goods and products, but also trying to make the products better along with things that their consumers care about than what might be available in the market. So they're really innovated along these lines. Um, along, the, along product quality lines. And I think that's a really impressive way to do it. Ideally, you're not only able to meet a mid-market price or a mass market price, but also even make the products better. And that's the ingenuity and sort of that concern for the problem that can create differentiation in the market and, and I think a long-term advantage over just 
you know, selling something better direct to consumer. So are you are you seeing a trend where, where we're just going to have these kind of purposeful brands in almost every category? Yeah. yeah. How are you thinking about like the future, I guess, of purposeful brands? Are those going to just become ordinary brands? Like is purposeful going to be kind of just a, a commodity? Maybe. I mean, over time, I think that there's, we're still in the very early of this. You know what I mean? So you think about one or two generations out. Some of these product categories, by the way, are the product categories that consumers have had for multi-generations, right? Tide is in consumer family for three generations. It takes a long time to get there, but you know, pe- people tend to have really strong relationships with these brands, right? Your mom drinks Coke, you drink Coke, your kids drink Coke. Uh, it happens all the time. We're probably gonna play this for the long run. I think almost every category has, you know, value driven purposeful brands trying to uh, break out, trying to make a mark. A lot of them get consolidated into the major companies. You see this all the time in, in um, emerging food brands, right? Emerging drink brands, because uh, you know the big companies with distribution want to have, uh, you know, they want to have sustainable products also, or products that are more authentic, right? So it's a pretty common uh, factor in that category. But if you want to build a big, long-term, sustainable company, I think you've got to be inspired to change the game and how people think about a particular problem. And the the difference between, I think. A lot of good companies with good outcomes and great companies that can be category defining companies are the degree to which they focus on the trust needs of the consumer and really winning the trust of the consumer, helping them solve the problem of over-information, being a source of truth and filling that sort of trust gap that the traditional institutions have not um, have sort of uh, absconded. And um, it's a hard thing to do, actually. Not every company can do that. Most companies aren't doing that. When we see a founder or a team that's sort of taking that approach, then it gets us really excited. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to compete on the other end of the spectrum when you go and search on Amazon and you're looking just, okay, are the reviews good on this on this item and, and, and the price point's okay, right? It's very, very hard to, in some ways, it's very, very hard to be a brand just because of Amazon, right? There's a great New York Times article that just came out about how many sort of random trademarks and brands out of China are competing on Amazon for commodity goods. Right, uh, it's 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 really unbelievable. I mean, one of our sort of controversial perspectives is that uh, Amazon, in a way, has ruined commerce. Again, it's great for fulfillment; it's great for getting anything you want anytime. But um, if you care about the things that you're buying, you can't read reviews and look through you know thirty thousand different vendors and price points and options for every single product that you might want to purchase. Um, Amazon's become so polluted with fake reviews, so polluted with so many brands selling so many things, that even though consumers make decisions on Amazon, right, it's hard for any considered purchase to feel like you're necessarily making the right decision unless you do a good amount of research. Um, so again, it's a good example of how, similar to what I was talking about with travel, that um, the e-commerce companies become great at fulfillment, but really bad at helping you make decisions at scale across a variety of products. And you know, into that breach can step a company that has that empathy with that consumer problem. I wanted to hear your thoughts as well on the DTC channel as really a channel for uh, for disruption. Of course, the Casper um, S1 just came out, and would love to kind of hear your thoughts in terms of um, in terms of you know what you think about the future for DTC is. One of the things that's happened with direct consumer sort of commerce companies is um, is that Facebook has really become the prime enabler of these companies because uh, Facebook advertising has sort of been a way that you can find the right kind of co- uh, customers at the right time for the right kind of price. And in the early stages of any company, uh, between Facebook, Instagram, and Google, you're, you can end up you know, 
getting to a reasonable amount of scale. Um, what we're seeing with a lot of these companies, and Casper and the mattress industry is a good example, is that good ideas can be easily replicated. Um, that a lot of companies, not just in your category, but in a lot of other categories, are all competing for the eyeballs of those same consumer. And that as you try to continue to achieve scale, uh, it becomes much more expensive once you're at scale to actually be able to acquire the incremental customer. So what's a direct consumer brand to do? Um, it goes back to, I think, whether or not you are thinking about your business as a product business or as a platform business. Are you a product business or are you a solution business? What business are you really in? Right, um, Casper famously was, uh, to use that example, have tried to position themselves as a wellness or a sleep company, right? And they've got a variety of products, but that pivot's actually very hard because they started out really being a product company. So Casper doesn't necessarily mean sleep to consumers. They're not solving the consumer's problem of sleep, they're solving the consumer's problem of mattress. And solving the consumer's problem of good sleep is a much more potentially We'll see if this plays out, but it would be potentially much more durable and interesting relationship to have with the consumer. The consumer trusts that you are the place to come to, the authority on all things sleep, the product catalog you can offer that consumer, and the variety of ways you could serve that consumer are far greater than if you're just a product company selling mattresses and pillows. When a company takes the tack of saying, what is the real problem my customer wants to solve? What is their real emotional pain point? And how do I solve that? The potential for fanning the flames of your business and expanding it are far greater, right? And that takes some real empathy and emotion, emotional resonance with what the consumer's needs are. Growth, for their part, it's sort of they're in the sustainable home essentials category today, but you know they really have tapped into the idea that what uh, parents must have feel like good parents. You know, they want um, they want to feel like they're doing the right thing for their kids, and by enabling that, you know that's where uh, girls will be able to win a tremendous amount of trust with the consumer. Right. No, I think it's I think it's interesting because as you said, if you want to be a sleep company, like sleep is a is a pretty big category. It's interesting how that certainly is a trend. Uh, but um, as you said, because Casper started off really as a product company with the mattress, it's it's tough to make that transition. I think it is tough. And, and if you start off with the intention of occupying the headspace around a category for the consumer and solving a problem for the consumer, you actually might make different choices. So let me give you an example. A lot of direct-to-consumer companies start off with first-party goods. They invent some new, better product. And then over time, they might offer third-party goods, right? Good partners and stuff like that. It may be more interesting to start off with third-party goods, though. If you're actually in the business of saying to the consumer, you have too much to think about. There are too many considerations to figure out about what the right thing is to buy. Your local fulfillment options are not that good at your local store because you're living in the suburbs of Chattanooga or whatever it is. So let's help you with that. Right, you might start with third-party goods, and then over time, as you learn what consumer behaviors are, and as you realize where there's gaps in the markets where you can build a better product to market, then you start to offer third-party goods with that level of information, and you've already built up so much trust because you started out being the curation engine for the consumer that your first-party goods are received really effectively. Right, so I think we'll. It's it's been interesting to watch how all these brands have evolved. Some of them have built really big companies, which is great. But um, if you want to build a really big, sustainable competitive advantage that can be sort of a category-defining public company, you know, I think we'll see things go in a different direction. And a, and a good example is Chewy, right? Chewy is a, a multi-billion-dollar public company now, been around for a long time, but really has come to sort of mean pets to their customers, right? They've really kind of captured 
um, that product category and, and be able to build a really substantial business out of it. I wanted to talk a little bit about Gen Z. We were talking before about how the picture has become the most important uh, medium or, or, or art form, especially with Instagram. And, you know, if the photos wasn't taken, it never happened. And how, because of that, you can never be wearing the same outfit twice. Uh, and how that's really influenced uh, younger generations to uh, participate in fast fashion. And then you, but then you also have, uh, you know, like Gen Z that's very, very committed towards sustainability, which fast fashion is anything but. And I wanted to know how you're thinking about those contrasting trends as it relates to Gen Z. Yeah, I think like a lot of consumer trends, and this is not just the case with, um, with what you're describing, but it's not uncommon that you have really, you know, sort of diametrical forces um, influencing consumer behavior. I think you're pointing out a good one, which is that the kind of uh, audience or generation that's, that cares particularly about sustainability uh, in order to sort of be a part of their social milieu or capture status on Instagram, you know, might... Um, uh, might do sort of may have unsustainable consumer behaviors <laughs> when it comes to uh, buying fast fashion. I think it's part of that's the fact that um, consumers tend to vote with their dollar. You know, you're, it's going to be really tough for sustainability only to be a prime to be the only way that consumer, recent consumers buy stuff unless your product is just as good as the alternative or better, and the price points sort of still in line of, of what someone wants. Plus. There's another important factor, which is, is consumption of the product something that you can virtue signal around and capture status around? Uh, consumers, kids today will, you know, eat a burger that doesn't taste as good as a, you know, burger made out of meat. Um, they'll eat a, a, an Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat Burger, and they will talk about it on Instagram and uh, get a lot of likes for it because, you know, it doesn't matter how good it tastes. Those status points are are really delectable. And... Um, that's been a driver of, of human decision-making emotion for a really long time. You know, um, I do think there's an opportunity as, uh, as this is an opportunity for a lot of people as, or not for a lot of people, but a lot of categories is how do you make mass sustainability possible? We talked about examples of that earlier. You know, those are the companies I think that can win. They can step into that sort of big middle of the market and bring those, make those values accessible to everybody. Apparel is a weird one because everything in the apparel trend has gone towards the opposite of, you know, durability, right? Um, and fast fashion is so endemic for that category. But I'll give you an example of a, of a category where that's happened and where, you know, we're actually building a company to try to solve it. And that's in furnishings and furniture, right? Um, if you think about the market, there's sort of like, you know, everyone would want to have a nice place, you know, go to their apartment or their home and have everything match, be high quality, be durable, look like it goes well together. All of our design expectations are have dramatically increased over the last 10 or 15 years with the advent of Instagram and HGTV and all that kind of stuff. We all know what good design looks like. We all, all of our um, all of our bars have been raised. Yet the um, our ability to actually meet those bars are not necessarily better, right? Uh, if you ask most people how good they are at like furnishing and designing a space that looks pretty damn pretty darn good, you know, they're not experts at it. It takes a long time. And so what you, what's ended up happening is the market has become bifurcated into the wealthy who pay for design services and interior designers and all that kind of stuff and, you know, go and get the services from higher end furniture companies. And then everybody else, what everyone else has ended, up, has ended up doing by and large is really reverting to more disposable stuff, lower cost disposable stuff. And that's 
why Ikea is the place that, you know, uh, reasonably hiring young professionals in their late 20s and early 30s, you know, turn to the most for designing and furnishing your spaces because it's kind of disposable. You don't mind if it breaks or if it, you have to sell it in a year when you move to take the next job or whatever it is. Same with Wayfair. Um, and that's really an interesting moment because I think if consumers could have higher quality at a reasonable price in a way that worked together from a design perspective, they'd be willing to subscribe to a service like that. If someone could tell them that they could solve all these myriad problems that exist in the furniture business um, in one fell swoop. And a company in our, in our uh, portfolio called Oliver.Space is doing exactly that, having realized uh, at Oliver that really the entire furniture industry is organized either to be inaccessible to everyday consumers, to be uh, disposable, and there's 10 million tons of furniture that ends up in landfills every year, so it's extremely unsustainable, uh, or hard to do and time-consuming uh, and, and low on service. It takes eight weeks to get a couch when I buy one at West Elm. You know, uh, those kinds of consumer experiences are just terrible, and we think we can solve all of those in one fell swoop by building a product that, that offers push-button design with high-quality stuff delivered to your door the next day for the cost of a cell phone plan. Yeah, those are some great examples about furniture. We talked before as well about social media and the empty calories you might be getting from uh, social media due to uh, status and not really uh, connecting. I wanted to hear your thoughts about the future of social media. The future of social media is something um, that's really near and dear to my heart. From my early days at MTV when we were um, uh, really trying to play a big role in the evolution of, of social media, the dawn of social media in the early 2000s, to my time at Twitter, uh, which I worked most recently when I ran corporate development. So um, I think social media is an incredible tool, has a great role to play in connecting the masses. But I think we're kind of, you know, I think it's it's both zeitgeisty, but also reality that, that social media has not fulfilled us personally and emotionally the way that we kind of hoped. Um, it's brought us closer together, but in a way that doesn't isn't always authentic. And part of the reason for that is that if you look at sort of pre-social media, if you think about, uh, let's use MTV as an example, you know, media in general was still curated by people, right? Institutions still had authority. There were VJs, there were uh, newscasters, there were, you know, uh, editorial institutions like the New York Times that had sort of a, you know, that were committed to trying their best to create truth. And what's happened over the last sort of 15 years or so with social media is that technology platforms have sort of filled that media void and are taking up a lot of our attention. But when platforms optimize for engagement, they don't necessarily optimize for some, you know, sort of a, uh, the kind of thing that might actually build brain fulfillment, this sort of human uh, part of it. This idea that there's another person on their side curating, caring about the work I'm providing and what they're consuming. Um, and I think the future of social media, if I think about the next 10 years, and we're seeing this with more and more companies, is recognizing that humans want more authentic human connection, that offline human connection is as important, if not more important, than connecting with people through technology. And the technology can be a tool to get us interacting offline, but um, that doesn't need to necessarily be the only thing we interact with. And so, you know, I'm really excited to see how that develops. I think we're going to see offline and online hybrids that become big companies that help people connect with others for a variety of reasons in person. Um, and we're seeing some of that right now. Um, so there's a company um, called Sofar Music, which is growing really quickly and has such an interesting model of um, doing last minute, if you will, shows that bring people together where it's not uh, told to you up front exactly what the show is going to be. 
you're sort of trusting the institution of so far to create a memorable and amazing experience that actually creates human connection online. So technology is kind of a tool to reach people, but the magic's happening in that shared experience in person. And that's a really good example of kind of how, uh, of what the future could look like, I think, uh, and more fulfilling uh, future could look like. By the way, we're also seeing that, we're talking about social media, but I would argue that this is a phenomenon that is endemic to big, interesting scale companies across a variety of categories. Like, you know, we all trust, if you're in a moment where you don't really trust institutions as much, or, you know, a monolithic, faceless organization, we're more likely to trust people. I think that's why the influencer economy has become um, meaningful. There's a real person on their side of that influencer who's, who's trying to say something to me. Uh, that's why we, you know, uh, there's something compelling about getting to a car with someone who is an actual person. Yeah, someone in front of you. I think we crave that human connection when it comes to uh, the next generation of commerce companies. I think one trend that we are going to see consistently is that part of providing that curated experience is having an individual at the company, at the institution, sort of helping you make decisions. Stitch Fix is a good example of this, right? There's actually uh, stylists that are helping you make great decisions about clothes. Poshmark is a marketplace. Um, that we're lucky to, to support that, you know, really enables its seller stylists to help create great looks for its customers. And that business is doing great. Uh, at Grove, they have um, uh, customer happiness uh, folks that help every customer sort of every uh, couple of months figure out the right items that should go into uh, their box to meet their needs. And so this, I think, I think leveraging real human intimacy, um, what, you know, enabled or scaled the technology to help people make decisions or as part of the story of what people are consuming is going to be a really important part of, of what we're all looking for in the products and services we support over the next several years. Yeah, the curation side of experience, that's something we haven't heard yet on this show. It's its really interesting. I've had some folks say, you know, it's funny you started a consumer podcast because, you know, as it relates to high growth companies, consumer is dead. And wanted to hear your thoughts about if it's if it's a contrarian time to invest in consumer. About being a, being a contrarian moment, I think the reason people are thinking that you know there's there's some validity, if I can take the stance of why is it a contrarian time to be a consumer investor in the sense that you have an explosion of interesting consumer companies, usually when a new platform is brought to market, whether that's been well trod ground, whether it was the internet, social was another platform that sort of created a mini movement. One important platform was actually SEM, just search created a whole new category of commerce companies that couldn't have existed before. And then certainly mobile. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion around what's the next platform that you have a platform to create a really big category of finding companies. And, you know, with the absence of that new platform, right, what we're seeing with companies like Facebook, as I mentioned earlier, is that they tend to control access to the consumer and therefore suck up all the money in the space. Having said that, during these quote unquote fallow times in uh, between new platform adoption, um, we've seen really interesting big companies get created. You know, the whole social media company movement happened in such a time uh, in the early 2000s. There's a bunch of really interesting commerce companies created in the early 2000s during a time. So I don't, I would never say that founders of consumer companies don't lack for innovation. They are always really interesting founders doing really interesting things. And we're inspired every day by the people that come to our offices and, and are sharing their dreams with us and what kind of impact they want to make in the world. That doesn't mean it's easy. But you know what? It's never easy, and uh, and so no, we're we're actually quite bullish that there are lots of opportunities for great founders speaking to consumers to build big companies. It just may take a little longer than it did at the beginning of the uh, you know sort of Cambrian explosion of a new platform, or 
may require a little more ingenuity on the part of the of the founder, but that's certainly not uh, that's no different from really creating any company. I think the thing we'll look back on in this moment is like there's so many ways to apply software in interesting and useful ways to helping consumers, and I think we're just starting to see some of that. When I talk about curation, about you know a small number of uh, customer happiness people serving millions of subscribers, when we talk about how do you use AI to help consumers make buying decisions or, or make choices, marketplaces to bring different kinds of people together where there's uh, institutional trust created in the middle. There's, there's so many ways, kind of behind the scenes even, to leverage software and technology. And I think that's, the, that's gonna be an interesting part of what makes a really interesting consumer company, you know, not losing without losing that humanity that we talked about earlier. And I think we're in the early innings of learning how that's going to be applied by the next generation of founders. And so that, that's another reason that we're bullish. Those are all great points about why some investors might think this is a contrarian time since, uh, you know, there hasn't been a new platform for, for a little bit. But I really enjoyed hearing about the opportunities that you're thinking about in curation as it pertains to consumer. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? So my first answer is a book that's actually been really impactful to me along both fronts. And I think that uh, that's important because I think in what we're trying to do here in the Valley and, and the nature of any of these demanding jobs, you're separating personal and professional. It's kind of hard, right? Like we're the, our capabilities professionally and how we bring ourselves to the workplaces are limited by our personal limitations. Um, a book that's had a really big influence on me lately is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which is an old book that was written right after World War II. Uh, my partner Tim Chang just sort of casually gave it to me the, uh, a few months ago, uh, and that and that was something that really had an impact on me in terms of my personal change. Just in hearing, of, reading about an experience in the Holocaust and that Victor Frankl went through, and um, how a perspective on life can make all the difference to your resilience and how resilience can make all the difference when it comes to survival. And that's a book that's really inspired me that I think about all the time when it comes to reframing the challenges of life from how do I handle the situation to what is life asking of me now? And I find that that's uh, just a really useful and simple way to enable a approach to life that is about responding instead of reacting. And that's been really meaningful to me, I would say, across all fronts. Sounds like a must read. I think, it's, I think it's a must read. It's a really small book, but a really impactful one. What is your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? Most recent investment was actually the one that we talked about earlier, Oliver.Space, um, which we announced uh, sort of mid last year. And it's, uh, it's off to a great start. And we're very excited about sort of the approach they take and how they can disrupt sort of a $200, $300 billion industry in the US alone. Um, another company that we're really excited about is called Projector. Projector is uh, going to be launching soon. It's sort of a, a rethinking of how design adjacent professionals can create amazing, create amazing work uh, uh, in the workplace and, and even beyond the workplace. And um, it's an amazing founding team that's going to be releasing uh, something pretty huge in the coming months. We're pumped about that one too. Both sound really exciting. Very stoked for you. What's one piece of advice that you have for B2C founders? One piece of advice. Well, I guess the, the, the thing I come back to quite often is to ask folks, like, what business are you really in? What emotion are you tapping into? What solution are you trying to build for the consumer? In very many cases, there's sort of the product and the solution that you think you're providing. It's sort of like the tactical one. But behind that, there's the business that you're, that you're really in, the, 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 the payoff that you're really providing. And um, that usually is an emotional payoff. That's usually something in the heart, not in the head. 
And when you can tap into that, you can create, I think, more interesting and more impactful company. Absolutely. Like why, what's the emotional reason for you starting this company as well as how does that identify with your, with your customers as well? Rishi, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. I super appreciate you having me, Mike. Thank you so much. I mean, it's great that you're uh, covering these kind of topics and um, I can't wait to see how it turns out. And there you have it. Thank you again, Rishi, for taking the time to share your views and insights. This was a lot of fun. If you'd like to follow Rishi on Twitter, you can at Rishi Garg. We will also have a link to his article, Building a Consumer Franchise, which is pretty great. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and stay safe.